Army brass have been pursuing a modernization strategy for some time now via the Army Futures Command. It's focused on doctrine and lethality and the systems to keep the Army out front. But Futures Command is also looking at modernizing another component where the Army has historically innovated, namely its medical operations. For an update, we turn to the Chief of Medical Readiness and Integration at Futures Command, Colonel Mike Mansell. He talked with Tom Temin. As the Army moves forward and we get into multi-domain operations, the medical force also has to modernize and step with that. And what that means is as the line side moves faster, the medical force also has to move faster. So we need to be able to see, understand, and act at the speed of relevance in order to support the operations that the line side are doing. What that means is on a data-driven battlefield, we need to be able to acquire data, process it, understand it, and be predictive in where our medical forces are going and our resources so that we can optimize the ability to support that force and maintain momentum on the battlefield. It sounds like then as the Army becomes, I think, in its words, or at least in concept, much more mobile, much more agile with smaller units, then the medical corps has to be close to where the action is, basically. Yes. What's going to happen is as we start to move into conflict with near-pair adversaries, we're not necessarily going to have that air dominance and movement dominance that we saw in the Middle East over the last few conflicts we've had. So we've got to be able to, A, provide prolonged care at the point of injury, and then optimize golden windows where we can move our patients to wherever they need to go. Now, one of the concepts that we're looking at is called medical convergence, where it'll be more of an AI-enabled machine learning concept where data will come up through the system to our medical common operating picture. AI will basically run through what our theater assets are or what's in that location and direct medevac to either might be a Navy ship, might be an airfield, might be an Army facility, but whatever's closest that can provide the proper care. And that's what our end state would obviously be for this strategy. And one implication of that is that the other armed services in joint operations would have the same ability to take in Army people just as Army people might take on their people, whoever is most available? Yes. We're no longer going to fight as individual forces. I think that's a pretty commonly agreed upon concept between the services. So, you know, medical is medical. We treat a, a sailor the same as a Marine, as a airman, you know, cadet, whatever you want to call them nowadays. They're all people. And we're a people first organization. It doesn't matter where they're coming from. And in reality, we're not going to be able to walk through echelon the way we did you know, in Europe and in in former battles. We're going to have to help each other out if we're going to be successful in the future battlefield. And the other implication of what you said is that medical corps people, the actual operators in the medical domain, it seems like they'd be more distributed in smaller numbers but more scattered along with where the operating units are, whatever armed branch, as opposed to the model people have maybe from old TV shows or whatever, movies of you know the medic operation somewhere way behind the lines, but a large centralized facility. Yeah, you know, we're used to seeing those big field hospitals, but we're going to be fighting a very dispersed formation type operation, especially in the Pacific, where our adversaries are going to have the same ability to pinpoint us the way we pinpoint them. So Large field hospitals are probably not going to be what you see in the future. We're going to have to be dispersed, lighter, more mobile, and more capable at the point of injury. You know, one of the concepts in the strategy is, you know, our our medics will be trained to a level higher than what they are now, almost in EMS, and then 
paramedic type of situation. And then the individual soldier is also going to have to step up and be trained to aid that medic because we're not going to have enough medics to handle what we're considering as our combat losses or, or our injuries at that point of injury. So it's really broadening the scope of medicine. It's broadening the capability of the individual soldier. And then we get into things like telehealth and things like that that can also help the medic at point of injury. But you know, we're fighting bandwidth issues and jamming and things like that. So it's really putting a lot of emphasis back on the, the individual soldier to help out. And it's also going to change how we really triage our soldiers because what might be an injury that takes you out of the battle in Iraq or Afghanistan may turn you into a care provider <laughs> on this battlefield. Interesting. We're speaking with Colonel Mike Mansell. He's Chief of Medical Readiness and Integration at the Army Futures Command. And what about medicine itself, the actual tools, techniques, procedures, doctrines, if you will, of medicine, because there have been a lot of advances in bleeding control and stabilizing people, monitoring people's health right at the field level. Does modernizing of the medical practice itself become part of this? Uh, yes. Actually, Army Medicine, you know, we're at the forefront of current modalities and treatments and materials. You know, we're always very good with that. What we have to do now is really start looking at our supply and how we get those materials and those resources to the people who can utilize them. That's going to be a huge issue. But also, as we innovate, as, you know, industry innovates, we also have to be agile enough to integrate those technologies into what we're doing and field harden them or make them military mobile versus civilian mobile type of thing where they can survive in extreme austere environments. You know, we're going to be going from 100 and something degrees in Iraq to who knows, we may be in the Arctic someday where we're looking at negative temperatures. So all of our materials, all of our equipment need to be able to handle all of those extremes. You know, we're also looking at novel viruses like COVID. You know, look what that did to the country. And to say that that won't be seen on the future battlefield is naive. So, you know, we got to be able to be flexible enough within our research facilities, MRDC, also working with academia and industry to be able to quickly develop and safely push out these vaccines or other medicines to our fighting force so that a virus such as a COVID comes along and doesn't knock us out. Yeah, it sounds like some of the battle situations are worse than the certain neighborhoods in Seattle, I guess. And, <laughs> that is true. That is true. And as this gets promulgated, what are the first steps toward operationalizing this strategy? How do you get from here to there? The first thing is identifying our gaps and what we're missing in our force now to our future force. And our medical CDIT has done a fantastic job with that. And we are moving forward with requirements to close those gaps. Obviously, as you get a disruptive technology that pops up, we need to be agile enough to acquire that and integrate it into our force. But really, that requirements process and identifying where our gaps are, that's the first step. And once we get that going, we reduce our gaps, then we can expand into, hey, how are we going to look in 2040 and beyond? What do we want the medical battlefield to look like? And that's going to really be a joint concept that will eventually come along. Is there any civilian area, domain, or say state or local type of model that can have any uh, learning for the Army in this? We do put a lot into our looking at how our EMS systems work. Also, you know, the military was involved in the COVID response. So we have things like the NETSIN, the network that helped with the COVID response. So there is a very good interaction between our civilian counterparts and the military. And 
And a lot of our military providers are also, you know, working in trauma facilities just to keep their skills up. So we do have a very tight relationship with our civilian counterparts. So yeah, we're always looking at what they're doing because like I said, people are people. And, you know, our soldiers are the same as anyone else who shows up into an emergency room. I'd hate to say we don't see it in the civilian side, but we are. But, you know, we probably see a lot more trauma in the military on the battlefield that we've got to be able to take care of. So uh, we're always looking at that and what other technological advances and advances in the biosynthetic world, you know, blood products, um, grafting materials, all that stuff. Uh, like I said, we, we're doing a lot of research on it. And we're, we're at the forefront of most of these materials right now. And one final question on a detail here. You mentioned the golden window, which is the time immediately after an injury when you can have the most effect with someone for the most positive outcome, that kind of magic hour after you know a heart attack type of parallel. And the strategy mentions robotics and drones to help mitigate the first mile problem. Tell us more about that. So the golden window, it kind of combines a whole bunch of, quote, golden concepts. You know, it was the golden hour that first hour after the injury that if you can treat the patient within that time or get them to where they need to be, their life expectancy increases. We've got to be able to extend that time, especially in a theater such as the Pacific, to at least 24 hours to where we can wait for that, quote, golden window to open up so that we can move the patient. Now, that golden mile is another concept that we can use autonomous vehicles, semi-autonomous vehicles to, you know, take a stabilized patient at the point of injury use an autonomous vehicle to move them maybe a terrain feature back to a medical holding area that can then process them, treat them, or move them in a safer manner that doesn't put medics or personnel at danger moving through an area that's in direct conflict with the enemy, or even a sea burning area where sending personnel in obviously is a risk due to the the sea burning environment. You send in an autonomous vehicle, you don't have to worry about that. And looking at the technologies we've spoken about, it seems like these are mostly commercially available. I mean, Futures Command is looking for innovative technologies across the spectrum of Army requirements. Are most of what you need to implement this in terms of technology and products already out there? Um, We are working very closely with industry partners and academia to incorporate what they have into what we need. Is it right there today? probably is. Is it what we needed to do on the battlefield? Probably not there yet. There's also some ethical things we've got to look at in terms of autonomous movement of patients. It's a lot more than just sticking a patient in an autonomous vehicle. It sounds easy in concept, but there is a lot of other things that we got to take into account. But the technology is almost there. Obviously, the battle side of autonomy is getting a lot of push by AFC. We're, We're making extremely quick progress in that area. But, you know, we still got some work because what works in the civilian world may not necessarily work on the battlefield the way we want it to. Colonel Mike Mansell is Chief of Medical Readiness and Integration at Army Futures Command. We'll post this interview and a link to the strategy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And you can hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up 
through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards 
two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.